Welcome to the Grow to Amazing podcast number seven. This is going to be a tough one for me to do today. Uh, it's It's been a crazy time in life. It's been a crazy week. I am way behind on my recording as far as this episode is concerned. I'm basically going to record this and publish it and put it out there. And hopefully it makes sense what I'm doing so or what I'm talking about today and, and where I take this. So... Uh, just kind of an update on where things are at with us. Uh, we are in the process of getting to transition to living full-time in a fifth-wheel camper and kind of traveling around this country. And in my copious spare time, when I'm not working and when I'm not uh, helping to take care of our boys, we're planning and booking campsites all around the country and trying to get close to visiting some family over the next nine months to a year. And just making that transition from living in a normal house to living in a a fifth wheel camper is exciting. It's awesome, but it's exhausting. And when you also have a one and a half year old that uh, isn't sleeping at night and and or is at least isn't sleeping consistently, and you're dealing with that at the same time that you're trying to do all this other stuff as well as you know, working a full-time job, it just makes life a little bit interesting. And I give it to my, all the credit to God and to my wife that we're going to make this battle work and we're going to, you know, make this, make this transition work. And so thankful for family and friends that have, that have stuck with us through all this and that have been there for us through this time. Um, but we're going to get there. But uh, that's just all kind of combined to mean that I was supposed to record this episode probably a week ago. Um, it's now Thursday, March 11th. This episode is going to get published on Friday, March 12th. And so it is what it is. It's is. I'm going to do my best with this topic. And there's a lot of things to go through here. There's no way that I can do the book that I'm going to review today. There's no way I, I can really do it justice in the amount of time that I'm going to take for it. I'm not going to hit all of it. I'm just going to hit some highlights. And I'm just going to do the best job that I can to talk about this book and, and the impact that it's had on my life. And the book that we're talking about today is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And that is a book that covers uh, his first 12 tenets on making your life a better place to live for you and the people around you and the people involved in your life and and just setting the stage for what it takes for you to become a better person and a better uh, member of society and this book really hit home with me because i think it's a way to take some of that personal responsibility and bring it on yourself to stop making making excuses for some of the things that uh, ha may have plagued you or gone wrong in your life, and to look at that, take that responsibility inward, and use the tenets that are in this book to make a difference first with yourself, and then to push it outward to the people around you and the world around you. There is. A lot of this that really touched home because it goes down to my ego, it goes down to my confidence in myself, it goes down to taking care of yourself and dealing with your junk before you try to change the world. 
and I think that's going to be one of the biggest points out of this, is that I think I tried to make a lot of excuses when I was younger about the things that were happening to me or just chose not to engage with those things and um, let them just pass over and happen to me without taking ownership and without taking the lead on on what was happening. But then at the same time, I had my ego in there. I had my ego standing in the way of of making progress personally and making progress with myself and making progress with finding the, the right path forward for me and my family. And to an extent, it's got me where I am today. At the same time, part of the reason of doing this podcast is to try to make it something that is can help you avoid having the same thing happen to you in your life. So if you can learn something from my mistakes and, and the things that I did wrong, that's why I'm doing this. So, you know, I love philosophy. I love reading through things like Dr. Peterson's book, and I am so thankful that he's put it out and that the follow-on to it is also out. So, you know, Beyond Orders also also out. That's the next 12 rules uh, that were originally a, a Quora post that Dr. Peterson did where someone asked, you know, what are some rules for life that we should abide by? And the genesis of that has turned into these two books. And if the second one is anything like the first one, it's going to be life-changing for me there as well. Uh, that's not to say that Dr. Peterson isn't controversial. He does fit. I don't know that he fits on. If you watch him and you watch him talk, I don't think he fits necessarily anywhere on the spectrum of conservative liberal, although I think his ideas of individual personal responsibility, I don't, I don't know where that fits. I, I, I think he's saying things that don't necessarily agree with today's culture, things like uh, personal responsibility, you know, taking ownership of, of yourself and your mistakes and fixing them yourself and not depending on the government or, or somebody else to fix them for you. Standing up with your head held high and finding the confidence within yourself and not being built up by external forces, those kinds of things. He's been controversial because of some of the things he's refused to do. Uh, they started trying to put a gender pronoun law in place in Toronto and in, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was countrywide in Canada. I'm losing the detail on that for the moment. But it was at least the provincial government of, of the Toronto area. And I'm going to get killed by Canadians here, but I can't remember the province that Toronto's in. I'm just drawing a blank on it at the moment. Even though I used to write software for Canada about the Canadian addressing system. So Ontario, what am I talking about? Yeah, the Ontario government tried to put in a law to say that you had to, that it was required. It was hate speech if you didn't use someone's gender pronouns appropriately. And Jordan took that as a slap in the face for free speech. And I'm not here to defend him on that. I'm not here to try to reason my way through his thoughts and his things. There's certainly plenty of videos by him out on YouTube talking about the controversy and talking about 
his views on it, and I'm not going to fight that battle again. I personally, I, I'm all for respecting each other, and and I I will respect anyone, and I and I probably go further than further with this than a lot of people would. Of I respect people, regardless, or I try to respect people regardless of their attitude towards me and their level of respect towards me. Uh, probably because of the changes because of my faith is that I take it a little bit further than than normal uh, but I also try to love people regardless of of their feeling toward me and be kind to people and be graceful towards them because I don't know what's going on in their life when they're acting a certain way toward me and I and I hope that that behavior can get parodied back parroted back towards me or at least come back to roost if I can make someone's day a little bit better if they're having a bad day and treat me wrong that doesn't necessarily mean that I get to act a certain way towards them just as a payback so I mean I I do know that there's a lot of people that consider him the the poster child for alt right you know, outright uh, disrespect for people of the LGBTQ community. And I don't think that that could be further from the truth, because I think if you actually listen to Dr. Peterson and read his book and look at some of the videos that are out there, you don't even have to look under his account to give him credit for it. There are thousands of videos of him making public speeches and, and things like that under accounts that don't get monetization uh, where he talks and and goes through his theories on life and his theories on the the whole controversy he's been embroiled in I think he just detests society that abdicates personal responsibility and personal growth and introspection and and detests a society that grows towards socialist and communist behavior because that kind of takes away responsibility from the individual and puts it on society and abdicates any and all uh, reach of that particular individual into the realm of trying to better oneself. His main books that he references would be the Gulag Archipelago. And I think I've got a copy here somewhere. Where are you hiding? I know I've got it, but by Solzhenitsyn, and that is one of the seminal works that he always references about the Soviet state, about how it turned on the people through a process of groupthink and a process of group indoctrination, turned people that had not done anything to anybody and turned them into to enemies of the state and basically had millions of people executed in the Soviet Union. And if you don't think that that can happen today in today's society, I think it's happening on both sides of the aisle with politics the way they are today. People are polarized like nothing else, both on the left and the right. And I don't think that that's something that is going to change anytime soon. I wish it would. I wish people would take a step back and realize that there is a way for us all to get along. We may not agree. We're not going to agree. We don't have to agree. But just like any other day in time, if we choose to respect each other and love each other and give each other grace, we can understand our differences and work through our differences. 
Does that mean that we're not going to see things where the Democrats are trying to advance an agenda? No, that's still going to happen, but it would be nice. And and the same things happen with the Republicans over the years. So, I mean, I'm not going to beat this to death, but the point is, is that we're not even involving each other. We're not even talking to each other. We're not even respecting necessarily one another with a few notable exceptions of people. And it's got some, at some point it's got to stop. And I'd like to think that Dr. Peterson's book would be part of that. If, if people would take the, take the time to read it and look at it and understand it, then we would get a little bit further along in life. So I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction of the book and then we'll kind of dig down into it later in more depth. And I'm not going to hit the first book is the first 12 rules. I'm not going to hit all 12 of those. I'm going to hit the most important ones to me and we'll talk through those. So it does, I am going to get philosophical. So, and Dr. Peterson is the first one to say that he is a very, he understands his ideas by talking about them. So you'll hear him talking through his ideas, testing theories, and this book is a lot like that. So it's a hard read. It can be a hard read. It can take you a few times going through a section to really understand. And it and he tries to hit all angles of a particular idea, but I think that's a good thing. So ideologies are simple ideas disguised as science or philosophy that purport to explain the complexity of the world and offer remedies that will perfect it. Ideologues are people who pretend they know how to make the world a better place before they've taken care of their own chaos within. That's hubris, of course, and one of the most important themes of this book is set your house in order first, and Jordan provides practical advice on how to do this. Ideologies are substitutes for true knowledge, and ideologues are always dangerous when they come to power because a simple-minded, I-know-it-all approach is no match for the complexity of existence. Furthermore, when their social contraptions fail to fly, ideologues blame not themselves, but all who see through the simplifications. Another great University of Toronto professor, Louis Feuer, in his book, Ideology and the Ideologists, observed that ideologies retool the very religious stories they purport to have supplanted, but eliminate the narrative and psychological richness. For example, communism borrowed from the story of the children of Israel in Egypt with, with an enslaved class, rich persecutors, a leader like Lenin who goes abroad, lives among the enslavers, and then leads the enslaves to the promised land, the utopia, the dictatorship of the proletariat. To understand ideology, Jordan read extensively about not only the Soviet gulag, but also the Holocaust and the rise of Nazism. So if there's one thing, if you want to refute Dr. Peterson, you got to do your research. You got to put your time in, understand uh, the underpinnings of the Holocaust, understand the underpinnings of the Soviet system, communism, socialism, and the rise of Nazism. So if you can't do that, then who are you to throw stones? I had never before met a person both born Christian and of my generation who was so utterly tormented by what happened in Europe to the Jews and who had worked so hard to understand how it could have occurred. I too had studied this, this in depth. My own father survived Auschwitz. My grandmother was a middle-aged when she stood face to face with Dr. Joseph Mengele, 
the Nazi physician who conducted unspeakably cruel experiments on his victim, and she survived Auschwitz by disobeying his order to join the line with the elderly, the gray, and the weak, and instead slipping into a line with younger people. She avoided the gas chambers a second time by trading food for hair dye so she wouldn't be murdered for looking too old. My grandfather, her husband, survived the Mauthausen concentration camp, but choked to death on the first piece of solid food he was given just before Liberation Day. I relate this because years after we, we became friends, when Jordan would take a classical liberal stand for free speech, he would be accused by left-wing extremists as being a right-wing bigot. And this is Dr. Norman Deutsch, MD, the author of the book, The Brain That Changes Itself, who's uh, one of Jordan's colleagues. Let me say with all the moderation I can summon, at best, those accusers have simply not done their due diligence. Dr. Peterson was a master at helping students become more reflective and take themselves and their futures seriously. He taught them to respect many of the greatest books ever written. He gave vivid examples from his clinical practice, was appropriately self-revealing, even of his own vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities, and made fascinating links between evolution, the brain, and religious stories. In a world where students are taught to see evolution and religion as simply opposed, Jordan shows his students how evolution of all things helps to explain the profound psychological appeal and wisdom of many ancient stories, from Gilgamesh to the life of the Buddha, Egyptian mythology, and the Bible. Above all, he alerted his students to topics rarely discussed in the university, such as the simple fact that all the ancients, from Buddha to the biblical authors, knew what every slightly worn-out adult knows, that life is suffering. If you are suffering or someone close to you is, that's sad, but alas, it's not particularly special. We don't suffer only because politicians are dim-witted, or the system is corrupt, or because you and I, like almost everyone else, can legitim legitimately describe ourselves in some way as a victim of something or someone. Remember, this is a, the grandson of a Holocaust victim talking. It's because we are born human that we are guaranteed a good dose of suffering. If you look back to what I just talked about when I logged on here, yeah, we've had a pretty tough week, and maybe that's my privilege talking. You know, things could be a lot worse, definitely. Uh, you know, it's, but there's, you know, uh, I'm going to keep going here. Otherwise, I'll digress. And chances are, if you know, if some, if you or someone you love is not suffering now, they will be within five years unless you're freakish, freakishly lucky. Rearing kids is hard. Work is hard. Aging, sickness, and death are hard. And Jordan emphasized that doing all that totally on your own without the benefit of a loving relationship or wisdom or the psychological insights of the greatest psychologist only makes it harder. He wasn't scaring the students. In fact, they found this frank talk reassuring. Even if there was never a, because, sorry, in the depths of their psyches, most of them knew what he said was true, even if there was never a forum to discuss it. Perhaps because the adults in their lives had become so naively overprotective that they deluded themselves into thinking that not talking about suffering would in some way magically protect their children from it. And that's something we'd really try to do better with our three younger boys than I did with my older son. And I'm, you know, I think I got better with that as Adam grew up, my oldest. Uh, but... 
was trying to let them fail and not doing too much for them. And we definitely spend time with our, our younger boys. You know, if they come up to us and ask, well, how do you think this would work at, or can you help me with this? It'll be like, well, why don't you try it and see how it works? And I probably have my wife to thank for a lot of that. I don't think I necessarily did a great job of learning that myself, but, um, but it's something we're getting better at because through failing, that's how you learn and that's how you become more resilient. And that's how you develop that strength of character that carries you through, carries you through those tough times of life. And so I think this, this book is key to that. So he goes on, this is still Dr. D- Dr. Doidge talking in the, in the introduction. Given our distaste for rules, how do we explain the extraordinary response to his lectures which give rules? In Jordan's case, it was, it was, of course, his charisma and a rare willingness to stand for a principle that gave him a wide hearing online initially. Views of his first YouTube statements quickly numbered in the hundreds of thousands. But people have kept listening because what he is saying meets a deep and unarticulated need. And that is because, alongside our wish to be free of rules, we all search for structure. The hunger among many young people for rules, or at least guidelines, is greater today for a good reason. In the West, at least, millennials are living through a unique historical situation. And you could probably say that's even being more true with COVID going on right now. They are the first generation to have been so thoroughly taught two seemingly contradictory ideas about morality simultaneously at their schools, colleges, and universities by many in my own generation. The first idea or teaching is that morality is relative, at best a personal value judgment. Relative means that there's no absolute right or wrong in anything. Instead, morality and rules associated with it are just a matter of personal opinion or happenstance relative or related to a particular framework such as one's ethnicity, one's upbringing, or the culture or historical moment one is born into. Nothing but an accident of birth. So, today the postmodernist left makes the additional claim that one's group morality is nothing but its attempt to exercise power over another group. Oh my gosh, how often do we hear that? Uh, Me being a white male, I'm exerting my privilege for talking about another white male's book. So the decent thing to do is to show tolerance for people who think differently, who come from different backgrounds. The emphasis on that emphasis on tolerance is so paramount that for many people, one of the worst character flaws a person can have is to be judgmental. And since we don't know right from wrong or what is good, just about the most inappropriate thing an adult can do is give a young person advice about how to live. And so a generation has been raised untutored in what was once called aptly practical wisdom, which guided previous generations. Millennials often told they they have received the finest education available anywhere, have actually suffered a form of serious intellectual and moral neglect. And I think that can be a lot of our helicopter parents. That can be a lot of professors indulging students and indoctrinating them in this shared culpability of our culture, that something is wrong with our culture and that their behavior is excused because of it. He goes on to say, 
cultivating judgment about the difference between virtue and vice is the beginning of wisdom, something that can never be out of date. So if you haven't, please read Proverbs in the Bible. Go take a look at it. You'll learn a lot. Our modern relativism, relativism begins by asserting that making judgments about how to live is impossible because there's no real good and no true virtue. Thus, relativism's closest approximation of virtue is tolerance. Only tolerance will provide social cohesion be between different groups and save us from harming each other. So you signal your so-called virtue, telling everyone how tolerant, open, and compassionate you are, and wait for the likes to accumulate. Leaving aside that telling people you're virtuous isn't a virtue, it's self-promotion. It's your ego. It's your... yeah. Virtue signaling is not virtue. Virtue signaling is quite possibly our commonest vice. How many people have posted stuff about how proud they are of themselves for going down to protest this, or to protest that, or to do this, or to do that? Why? Yeah. Intolerance of others' views, no matter how ignorant or incoherent they may be, is not simply wrong. In a world where there's no right or wrong, it's worse. It's a sign you are embarrassingly unsophisticated or quite possibly dangerous. But it turns out many people can't tolerate the vacuum, the chaos which is inherent in life, but made worse by this moral relativism. They can't live without a moral compass, without an ideal or at which to aim their lives. And I think that's where this book comes in, is to try to help you frame that moral compass and to frame that relativism that that uh, uh, the moral values within yourself to help you understand where you stand and what you believe and what is right and what is wrong. At least it's a start on it. I think Dr. Peterson would be the first to say it's not everything. It's a fragment of what you need. You need to study and you need to look inside yourself and develop an idea of what you believe and what you look at and go from there. So, let's get, dive in to introduce the book a little bit from Dr. Peterson's point of view. So that was uh, the, the introduction by one of his colleagues. So from the perspective of Dr. Peterson, a shared cultural system stabilizes human interaction, but it is also a system of value a hierarchy of value where some things are given priority and importance and others are not. In the absence of such a system of value, people simply cannot act. We experience much of our positive emotion in relation to goals. We are not happy, technically speaking, unless we see ourselves progressing, and the very idea of progression implies value. I'm getting better, so therefore things are better. Things are good. That's a good positive value. Because we are vulnerable and mortal, pain and anxiety are an integral part of human existence. We must have something to set against the suffering that is intrinsic to being, with a capital B. And he uses the term being as, it's a very philosophical term, so stay with me here. It's part of the exposure to the ideas of the 20th century German philosopher Heidegger. He tried to distinguish between reality as conceived objectively and the totality of human experience as being. 
over the capital B, is what each of us experiences subjectively, personally, and individually, as well as what we experience jointly with others. Motions, drives, dreams, visions, revelations. It's also finally something that is brought into existence by action, so its nature is to an indeterminate degree a consequence of our decisions and choices, something shaped by our hypothetically free will. So we must have a meaning inherent in a profound system of value or the horror of existence rapidly becomes paramount. So no value, no meaning. And how many people do you see sitting around depressed, playing video games 8 to 12 hours a day, just bleh? And I know I've been there enough in my life. It was, to an extent, video games. It was also reading science fiction and fantasy books. And not in a healthy way, but in a way that was a distraction from life and and was a way for me to forget about the good things in life. You would not have caught me 10 years ago reading a book like this. And in fact, when my wife and I met, she read a lot of self-help books and was working on improving herself a lot. And I laughed at the number of books she had versus the number of fiction books on my bookshelves. And I think it's fair to say that that content has shifted in my library in the last five years. So it took a while for her to sneak through to me, but or to get through to me, but it definitely got there eventually. So, like I said, there's 12 rules altogether in this book. I think we're probably gonna cover six at most in this uh, particular in this particular podcast. We'll see if we wanna go do and more and do more of them in the future. Uh, rule number one, so we're going to hit each of these rules. We're going to talk about them a little bit, give you a little bit of the impact that I had, that it's had on me, and kind of talk through things from there. So rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. And the first sentence, if you're like most people, you don't often think about lobsters unless you're eating one. However, these interesting and delicious crustaceans are very much worth considering. Their nervous systems are comparatively simple, with large, easily observable neurons, the magic cells of the brain. So scientists have been able to map their uh, chemistry and their biology with a high degree of accuracy and, uh, and skill. So we start talking, this, this chapter introduces what's called a dominance hierarchy. And it goes through different animals like lobsters, wrens, but chickens, songbirds, things like that. Chickens, like suburbanites, live communally. Songbirds, such as wrens, do not, but they still inhabit a dominance hierarchy. It's just spread out over more territory. The wiliest, strongest, healthiest, and most fortunate birds occupy prime territory and defend it. So if a contagious avian disease sweeps through a neighborhood of well-stratified songbirds, it is the least dominant and most stressed birds occupying the lowest rungs of the bird world who are most likely to sicken and die. This is equally true of human neighborhoods when bird flu viruses and other illnesses sweep across the planet. The poor and stressed always die first and in greater numbers. 
They are also much more susceptible to non-infectious diseases such as cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. When the aristocracy catches a cold, as it is said, the working class dies of pneumonia. Because territory matters and because the best locales are always in short supply, territory-seeking animals, territory among animals produces conflict. Conflict, in turn, produces another problem, how to win or lose without the dis disagreeing parties incurring too great a cost. But let me step back for just a second in that, that talk of the the uh, bird flu viruses and other, you know, it's obviously true in COVID today where we're seeing that the brunt of the worst effects of the co of COVID are being borne by low-income and disadvantaged classes. Am I trying to say that we don't do anything to help them improve and do better? Of course not. We can do more. We can try to make sure that there are vaccines available for those that want it. We can try to make sure that there's medicine more equi equitably distributed and that healthcare is available. At the same time, I'm, and I'm going to get, people have to work the jobs that they have to work. Not everybody can be a software consultant. Not everyone can be the president of a division of a manufacturing company. Not everyone can be a work from home telecommuter. Um, somebody has to go into a factory to cut meat. Somebody has to go into a uh, manufacturing plant to build cars, things like that. And those kinds of things, you know, there's, it's a tough job to get into. There's not a lot of people necessarily that want to work those jobs and, and work that hard. And they can be dirty jobs. They can be tough jobs. I mean, who wants to clean out a sewer line? Not me. Uh, but it's a, somebody's got to do it. And somebody's got to pay somebody to do it. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a high-paying job. So, but there is a hierarchy. There's a stratification. We can't burn that stratification down. We can't pay everybody the same. So but we can try to make life a little bit better as we go. Like he says, conflict in turn produces another problem, how to win or lose without the disagreeing parties incurring too great of a cost. So I'm definitely not reading all of this book. You've, you've got to go through and understand everything, you know, at a much greater detail than what I'm going through here. So he's got a great story in here about two lobsters meeting in conflict with each other in a fight over territory and it's just very interesting to just to see this so i'm going to actually get i wasn't going to read it but i'm going to uh but if the two lobsters are are very close in size and apparent ability uh, sometimes there's a a obvious when two lobsters meet in conflict there's an obvious winner and loser before they even start and but sometimes they're not. If they're very close in size and apparent ability, they'll proceed to dispute resolution level two with antenna, antennae whipping madly and claws folded downward. One will advance and the other retreat. Then the defender will advance and the aggressor retreat. After a couple rounds of this, the more nervous of the lobsters may feel that continuing is not in his best interest. He will flick his tail reflexively, dart backwards and vanish. If neither blinks, however, the lobster moves to level three, which involves genuine combat. They'll come at each other viciously, claws extended to grapple. They'll try to flip the other on its back. A successfully flipped lobster will conclude that its opponent is capable of inflicting serious damage. It generally gives up and leaves. 
if, if neither can overturn the other, they move to level four. Doing so involves extreme risk and is not something to be engaged in without forethought. One or both will emerge damage from the ensuing fray, perhaps fatally. They'll advance with increasing speed. Claws are open so they can grab a leg, antenna, eye stalk, or anything exposed and vulnerable. They'll tail flick, they'll grab something, tail flick backwards sharply, their claw clamp firmly shut and try to tear it off. There is typically a clear winner and loser. The loser is unlikely to survive, especially if any, particularly if he or she remains in the territory occupied by the winner, now a mortal enemy. In the aftermath of a losing battle, regardless of how aggressively a lobster has behaved, it becomes unwilling to fight further, even against another previously defeated opponent. He'll lose confidence, sometimes for days. A vanquished competitor loses, uh, sometimes the defeat can have even more severe consequences. If a dominant lobster is badly defeated, its brain basically dissolves. Then it grows a new subordinate's brain, one more appropriate to its new lowly position. Its original brain just isn't sophisticated to, to manage the transformation from king to bottom dog without virtually complete dissolution and regrowth. Anyone who has experienced a painful transformation after a serious defeat in romance or career may feel some sense of kinship with the once successful crustacean. And I think I can definitely relate to that based on things like my divorce when I had to reinvent and rebuild my life from virtually at what I felt at the time was nothing. All the plans and hopes and dreams that I had had for building a family were out the door. There was really nothing there to build from. Yes, I had my son. I still had my job. Things weren't probably as bad as I thought they were. But at the same time, when you see all of your friends, all of your family that you know, and I am talking virtually everybody I know that has married over the last 20 years, 25 years, is still married, 30 years, 40 years. My parents have been married 50-some years. And your divorce comes to a crashing end after less, you know, well, it was far less. It was finalized in six years. It was really probably over after four, but um, four or five. Oh, sorry, eight years total, but six at most. So you have to rebuild from that. And that takes that takes a lot of cognitive pain, a lot of time to recover from something like that. And they usually say it's about 10 years to recover from divorce. And I would, you know, both mentally and financially, probably more financially than mentally, but, you know, it's not easy. And the same thing goes with like losing a job you've done forever. How do you make the transition to do something new and something you've invested yourself in? So a lobster loser's brain chemistry differs importantly from that of a winner. This is reflected in their relative postures. Whether a lobster is confident or cringing depends on the ratio of two chemicals that modulate communication between lobster neurons, serotonin and octopamine. Now we definitely still have serotonin in our brains. Uh, dopamine is probably the other side of ours. 
but that ratio of those chemicals changes in shellfish to be different if they're subordinate versus a versus a uh, upper, you know, a uh, more dominant lobster. So the part of part of our brain that keeps track of our position in the dominance hierarchy is therefore exceptionally ancient and fundamental. Because there's a we have some erroneous concepts we've had in our heads. Nature is something strictly segregated from the cultural context constructs that have emerged within it. The order within the chaos, well, this gets this one gets pretty deep. Nature is what selects, and the longer a feature has existed, the more time it has to be selected and to shape life. So from the point of that, you've got to kind of think about that. Nature is something strictly segregated from the cultural constructs that have emerged within it. So nature's happening, we're growing, we're changing, we're getting older, we're building families, but cultural constructs can emerge within and around and wrapped around that. So, but that's always balanced between the hierarchy that's around us. And so, but that's something that's been around all throughout time. And I think that's what he's trying to make is make the point in is that lobsters have been around for hundreds of millions of years. If you, you know, it depends on, uh, or at least they're as old as this earth, let's say that. And they're as old as any any living creature today, and their points of being have been, their, their point of doing this is as simple as you can get, but it's very similar to human beings. How often do you see someone hating life, hating themselves, walking around with their shoulders slumped, you know, looking down at the ground, not looking up and taking on life with their, uh, with their head held high and their, their uh, attitude in the right place? This is why when we are defeated, we act very much like lobsters who have lost a fight. Our posture droops. We face the ground. We feel threatened, hurt, anxious, and weak. If things do not improve, we become chronically depressed. Under such conditions, we can't easily put up the kind of fight that life demands, and we become easy targets for harder shelled bullies. And it is not only the behavioral and experiential similarities that are striking. The neurochemistry is the same. Ser consider serotonin, the chemical that governs posture and escape and in the lobster. Low-ranking lobsters produce comparatively low levels of serotonin. This is also true of low-ranking human beings, and those low levels decrease more with each defeat. But you can change that. You don't have to stay that way. It takes a shift of being, a shift of attitude, and a willingness to look at all of your faults and take them on one at a time. The ancient part of your brain specialized for assessing dominance watches how you are treated by other people. On that evidence, it renders a determination of your value and assigns you a status. Now, should people be treating you with respect and treating you in accordance with cultural norms and and ideal and not ideologies i hate that word but with with uh respect and grace and love absolutely at the same time you we all have this little animal hindbrain that's looking at everything as a competition or comparison with other people and don't tell me you don't have it because i know that you do everybody does uh we may fight it we may have a 
have the ability to work around it. We may have the ability to grow and 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 get a stronger sense of who we are as a person, but that is there. And to the best of our ability, we can try to control it, but we're not always successful at that. So when operating at the bottom, the ancient brain counter assumes that even the smallest unexpected impediment might, might produce an uncontrollable chain of negative events, which will have to be handled alone, as useful friends are rare indeed on society's fringes. So you'll continually sacrifice what you could otherwise physically store for the future, using it up on heightened readiness and the possibility of immediate panicked action in the present. When you don't know what to do, you must be prepared to do anything and everything in case it becomes necessary. Doesn't that sound exhausting? Doesn't that just sound self-defeating and agonizing? The ancient counter will even shut down your immune system, expending the energy and resources required for future health now during the crises of the present. It will render you impulsive so that you will jump at it, for example, at any short-term mating opportunities or any possibilities of pleasure, no matter how subpar, disgraceful, or illegal. It'll leave you far more likely to live or die carelessly for a rare opportunity at pleasure when it manifests itself. The physical demands of emergency preparedness will wear you down in every way. And I know things like meth addiction and, and drug addiction are a tragedy. How many of those could we deal with if people had a sense of self that gave them the strength to be stronger and deal with their junk before they tried to turn to something like drugs to make themselves feel better? to weaken their systems, to weaken themselves, and to pull themselves down to the point where the only thing they feel they can do to make themselves happier is to get another hit. And that it's not going to do anything to do anything, it's not going to do any good to do anything else because I suck and I'm a loser. And I think even myself, when I was going through the divorce and then shortly thereafter was laid off from my job, had that sense of strong being and and more not morality high not high status either but strong status and sense of self-worth i think i had that beaten down as well inside my own head and just didn't feel that it was that i was worth as much as i truly was as a person so i let it all get to me i had placed a lot of value in both my marriage and you know, my job and let my ego control who I was. And when all that came crashing down, there was really nothing left. And so I turned to things like reading or pornography or just unhealthy behaviors, eating and drinking and doing, you know, all kinds of other things that didn't need to be done to make myself feel better when actually all I did was really make me feel more like shit. So, uh, so if you have a high status, on the other hand, the counter's cold, pre-reptilian, the counter's cold, pre-reptilian mechanics assume that your niche is secure, productive and safe, and that you're well buttressed with social support. 
It thinks the chance that something will damage you is low and can be safely discounted. Change might be opportunity instead of disaster. The serotonin flows plentifully. This renders you confident and calm, standing tall and straight and much, much less on constant alert. Because your position secure, the future is likely to be good for you. It's worthwhile to think in the long term and plan for a better tomorrow. You can delay gratification without foregoing it forever. You don't need to grab impulsively at whatever crumbs come your way because you can realistically expect good things to remain available. You can afford to be a reliable and thoughtful citizen. And we can all see those pictures. I mean, for many people, it may be a lie that they're projecting to the outside world of that confidence and and uh, not power, but they're confident and calm, standing tall and straight. That goes a long way in, t in today's society. It doesn't have to be cockiness. That's not what I'm saying it is at all. It's confidence. It's grace. It's feeling faith and strength in yourself. And in my case, in my relationship with God, to understand where I need to take things in my life. So, and I'm not saying I'm here all the way with this either. The body with its various parts needs to function like a well-rehearsed orchestra. Every system must play its role properly and at exactly the right time or noise and chaos ensue. They must be turned into stable and reliable habits so they lose their complexity and gain predictability and simplicity. So things like working out, exercise, eating schedules, sleeping schedules. And that's a big part of what's been my tough one lately is the, is the sleep schedule with our, with Jackson. God, I love him, but boy, you need to sleep. And uh, so sleep, exercise, routine. So it's for such re reasons that I always ask my clinical clients first about sleep. Do they wake up in the morning at approximately the same time the time the typical person wakes up and at the same time every day? If the answer is no, fixing that is the first thing I recommend. Doesn't matter if they go to much, much, if they go to bed at the same time, but what time you get up matters. And I think, yeah, it was one of my bad habits definitely when I wasn't doing well was I could sleep, you know, till nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, or I could, I had no consistent morning routine other than getting Adam out the door for school and rushing to get myself ready to go. The thought of getting up at 6 a.m. to read and study for an hour is was not even on my radar scope. I mean, I, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. I wasn't working out in the morning. I wasn't anything. It was sleep and gratification, self-gratification of laying in bed and being lazy type things. The next thing I ask is about breakfast. I counsel my clients to eat a fat and protein heavy breakfast as soon as possible after they awaken. Anxious and depressed people are already stressed, particularly if their lives have not been under control for a good while. Their bodies are therefore primed to hypersecrete insulin if they engage in any complex or demanding activity. If they do so after fasting all night and before eating, the excess insulin in their bloodstream will mop up all their blood sugar. Then they become hypoglycemic and psychophysiologically psycho unstable all day. Their systems can't be reset until after more sleep. 
So food, eating, and eating the right things along with sleep, a good consistent morning routine. And I think just from my experience these last few years, because it's only been the last few years I've really done well at this, other than when I was doing triathlon training and getting up and working out at, at 4.35 o'clock in the morning. But I wasn't really realizing what I was doing then. I was just, I was getting the workout in, but I wasn't really focusing on the benefits of, of having that time of the day to get it, to kick off my day. I, I was, I was looking at it from the workouts perspective and not taking a deeper dive into what it meant for me. Other bad habits can also interfere with the counter's accuracy. Sometimes this happens directly, and sometimes it happens because those habits initiate a complex positive feedback loop. Imagine a signal picked up by an input detector amplified and then emitted in, in amplified form. The trouble starts when the input detector, well, he doesn't have a real good example for that in here, but a lot of people have been subject to the deafening howls of feedback at a concert when the sound system squeals painfully. So you get that feedback loop going positive to negative. The negative enhances and grows and blows things out. The same destructive loop happens within people's lives. Much of the time when it happens, we label it mental illness, even though it's not only or even at all occurring inside people's psyches. Addiction to alcohol or another mood-altering drug is a common positive feedback process. So you can enjoy alcohol, but you can enjoy it a little bit too much. And you can have a few drinks, you can have six, you can have eight, you can have 12. He has a quick three or four, blood alcohol level spikes, it gets exhilarating, you get on a high, you keep going. It only occurs for a little while, and then you start to go down got to keep drinking you got to keep going you got to keep drinking more and before you know it your blood level blood alcohol levels plateau and start to sink as body begins to produce a variety of toxins as it metabolizes the ethanol already consumed he starts to experience withdrawal as the anxiety systems that were suppressed during intoxication start to hyper respond continue to continue the warm glow and stave off the unpleasant aftermath the drinker may just continue to drink until all the liquor in his house is consumed, the bars are closed, and his money is spent. The next day, he wakes up hungover. He figures out, hey, maybe that hangover will be cured with a few more drinks the morning after. But that's temporary. It pushes the withdrawal symptoms a bit further into the future. Then you got to go to work on Monday. Do you drink at work? Do you go out for a few over lunch? Do you have to go out after work to get five or ten drinks every night? Agoraphobia, the fear of going outside, that devolves into panic attacks. If you get too dependent on other people to help you and they're gone, what happens then? So how do you rise up? How do you turn that into something more positive? Sometimes our people are bullied because they can't fight back. This can happen to people who are weaker physically than their opponents. It's one of the most common reasons for the bullying experienced by children. But just as often, 
People are bullied because they won't fight back. This happens not infrequently to people who are by temperament compassionate and self-sacrificing, particularly if they are also high in negative emotion and making a lot of gratifying noises of suffering when someone sadistic, sadistic confronts them. It also happens to people who have decided for one reason or another that all forms of aggression, including even feelings of anger, are morally wrong. Often they're people whose fathers were excessively angry and controlling. Psychological forces are never unidimensional in their value, however, and the truly appalling potential of anger and aggression to produce cruelty and mayhem is balanced by the ability of those primordial forces to push back against oppression, speak truth, and motivate resolute movement forward in times of strife, uncertainty, and danger. So anger and aggression can be a good thing, is what he's saying. In bad times, they're definitely needed, but they can definitely go the wrong way too. So if you can bite, you generally don't have to. When skillfully, skillfully integrated, the ability to respond with aggression and violence decreases rather than increases the probability that actual aggression will become necessary. If you say no early in the cycle of oppression and you mean what you say, then the scope for oppression on the part of the oppressor will remain properly bounded and limited. The forces of tyranny expand inexorably to fill the space made available for their existence. And that's why you need to train yourself. That's why self-defense classes. That's why you need to understand how to take care of your family, yourself, your children, and defend them and teach them to defend themselves and stand up for themselves. I did a lot of self-defense training back in college. I want to do much, 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 much more. And I want to teach my boys and my wife what it means to take care of themselves. Because like it says, I love this sentence, if, or sentences. If you can bite, you generally don't have to. When skillfully integrated, the ability to respond with aggression and violence decreases rather than increases the probability that actual aggression will become necessary. Now, he doesn't mention statistics or he doesn't talk about, you know, a study that's looked at this and gone through this, but it's true. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it. Uh, you can see it backfire too, uh, where you're going to meet somebody that's going to either be drunk or stoned or doesn't, you know, crazy off their rocker, doesn't understand that you are there to defend your family and that it's going to happen. But at the same time, I can, it is a way of confidence of addressing your family and the world to say, I am going to care for my family no matter what. And that is usually something people can sense about you. He goes into a lot of discussion of naive and harmless people. Naive people believe people are basically good. No one really wants to hurt anyone else. The threat of force, physical or otherwise, is wrong. 
Would we like to think these things? Yes. But in today's world and any world, bad things happen to good people. And to say that that's not going to happen to our family because I'm a good person, that's just delusional. When naive people discover the capacity for anger within themselves, they are shocked, sometimes severely. A profound example of this can be found in the susceptibility of new soldiers to post-traumatic stress disorder, which often occurs because of something they watch themselves doing rather than because of something that's happened to them. They react like the monsters they truly, they can truly be in extreme battlefield conditions and the revelation of that capacity undoes their world. And no wonder. Perhaps they assume that all of history's terrible perpetrators were people totally unlike themselves. Perhaps they were never able to see within themselves the capacity for oppression and bullying. And perhaps not their capacity for assertion and success as well. I've had clients who were terrified into literally years of daily hysterical convulsions by the sheer look of malevolence on their attackers' faces. Such individuals typically come from hyper-sheltered families where nothing terrible is allowed to exist and everything is fairyland wonderful. When the awakening occurs, when once naive people recognize in themselves the seeds of evil and monstrosity and see themselves as dangerous, or at least potentially, their fear decreases. They develop more self-respect. Then perhaps they begin to resist oppression. They begin to see that they have the ability to withstand because they are terrible too. They, they see they can and must stand up because they begin to understand how generally monstrous they will become otherwise, feeding on their resentment, transforming it into the most destructive of wishes. To say it again, there is very little difference between the capacity for mayhem and destruction integrated and strength of character. There's very little difference between the capacity for mayhem and destruction integrated and strength of character. So it takes the ability to step outside of your comfort zone and be strong individually and that can be similar to things that can cause you angst and, and uh, I'm not saying that right I don't think I'm saying that right at all they see they must can and must stand up because they'll begin to understand how generally monstrous they will become otherwise feeding on their resentment transforming it into the most destructive of wishes so they're at a tipping point they're at a point where they have to decide which way are they going to go are they going to go down the destructive path or are they going to take the bull by the horns and win and i think that's why you see uh, not that you don't see Navy SEALs and Army Rangers or Delta Force guys with PTSD. You don't see as much of it, I don't think, as you see in the general infantry because those soldiers that went that extra step to be a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret are all volunteers 
They knew that that violence would be a part of their lives and expected it and wanted it and wanted to prove themselves on that island and in that crucible. So they generally don't, they respect the monster with, and I'm not even going to, I don't know if monster is the right word. They respect the capability within themselves to cause mayhem and destruction and respect the society that gives them the freedom to do that when called upon by their nation. But they also understand the limitations that need to be placed on that and the way that that needs to work to function correctly within society. So I don't know if I've said that quite right. At the same time, I think I, we see with general infantry in the army that aren't as prepared for something like gunfights and gun battles and up close taking of human life, as prepared as they can be from their training, that's not the same thing as pointing a rifle between somebody's, you know, at somebody and taking their life and seeing their head explode. If you're not prepared for that type of experience, you can go one of two ways. And like he said, they can see it from, they'll often recall it as looking at themselves from the outside. And I think the reason that, that this section is so strong for me is because I think that's the way that I felt for much of my life when I was struggling with integrating into society and knowing where I fit in and understanding my place and dealing with my ego and my, and my fragility and issues that I had at the time, you know, with my marriage and kids and, and everything in life and relationships and, and all across the board is that I always felt, and I know that I told this to my counselor, that I was looking at myself from the outside experiencing life, that I was watching myself doing these things. And it's not like I've got some kind of split personality thing going on. It's that it just didn't feel real to me. So maybe you're a loser and maybe you're not. But if you are, you don't have to continue in that mode. Maybe you just have a bad habit. Maybe you're even just a collection of bad habits. It's not necessarily appropriate now to keep your poor posture circumstances change. If you slump around with the same bearing that characterizes a defeated lobster, people will assign you a lower status. Circumstances change, and so can you. Start your own positive feedback loop. If your posture is poor, for example, then you'll feel small, defeated, and ineffectual. If you present yourself as defeated, then people will react to you as if you are losing. If you start to straighten up, then people will look at and treat you differently. To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. It means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential into the realities of habitable order. So you're stepping out, you're taking a chance, you're going for it. Fake it till you make it is part of part of that is <laughs> part of this whole thing. It's not faking it, but it's to take a new perspective and a new look at life. To stand up straight with your shoulders back means building the ark that protects the world from the flood, guiding your people through the desert after they've escaped tyranny. It means shouldering the cross that marks the X 
It means casting dead, rigid, and too tyrannical order back into chaos, into the chaos in which it was generated. So attend carefully to your posture. Quit drooping and hunching around. Speak your mind. Put your desires forward as if you had a right to them, at least the same right as others. Walk tall and gaze forthrightly ahead. Dare to be dangerous. Thus emboldened, you will embark on the voyage of your life. Let your light shine, so to speak, on the heavenly hill and pursue your rightful destiny. So I hope that, that that's chapter one. And that's a great way to start off. Okay, and I'm going to move on to the second rule. I, I mean, I think rule one with stand tall, good posture. I try to live that all the time. I think you could probably see at the beginning of this podcast that I wasn't. And I definitely struggle with that at times of, you know, how do you stand up? How do you, how do you, how do you be tall when you feel like the world's got you by the throat? And the answer is, is you just do it. I mean, it's you set aside, set aside the exhaustion, set aside the tiredness and take a deep breath, take five minutes to pray, take five minutes to meditate, whatever it takes for you to reset your bearing and get back after it and go. Life is too short to not do this. And I think I'm actually only going to get through three rules. Otherwise, I'm going to be here all night, literally talking. Rule two, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. And the subtext is, why won't you just take your damn pills? Imagine that 100 people are prescribed a drug. Consider what happens next. One third of them won't fill the prescription. Half of the remaining 67 will fill it, but won't take the medication correctly. They'll miss doses. They might not even take it at all. Physicians and pharmacists tend to blame such patients for their non-compliance in action and error. You can lead a horse to water, they reason. You just can't make him drink. Psychologists take a dim view of such judgments. We are trained to assume that the failure of patients to follow professional advice is the fault of the practitioner, not the patient. Well, can the practitioner give them advice that will make them more likely to follow it? Maybe, maybe not. Now, one of the talks about uh, kidney transplantation in here a little bit. You have to take uh, anti-rejection drugs. Most people are happy to accept the trade-off of increased longevity versus taking those drugs. They still suffer the effects of organ rejection despite the existence and utility of these drugs. It's not because the drugs fail. It's more often because those prescribed the drugs do not take them, which beggars belief. Dialysis is no picnic, and we have a friend that's had to do that until she got a kidney transplant. Transplant surgery has long waiting lists, is high risk and great expense. To lose all that because you don't take your medication, how could people do that to themselves? How could this possibly be? It's complicated to be fair. Many people who receive a transplant organ are isolated or beset by multiple physical health problems. They may be cognitively impaired or depressed, 
may be unemployed or with a family crisis. They may not entirely trust their doctor or understand the necessity. Maybe they can barely afford it and ration them. But, and this is the amazing thing, imagine that it isn't you who feels sick. It's your dog. So you take him to the vet. The vet gives you a prescription. What happens then? You have just as many reasons to distrust a vet as a doctor. If you cared so little for your pet that you weren't concerned with what improper, substandard, or error-ridden prescription he might be given, you wouldn't have taken him to the vet in the first place. Thus, you care. Your actions prove it. In fact, on average, you care more. People are better at filling and properly administering prescription medication to their pets than to themselves. That, as an understatement, is not good. Even from your pet's perspective, it's not good. Your pet loves you and would be happier if you took your medication. It's difficult to conclude anything from this set of facts except that people appear to love their dogs, cats, ferrets, and birds more than themselves. What could it be about people that makes them prefer their pets to themselves? He goes back into the creation story and talks about that for a while, about chaos and order within the world. But I'm going to skip forward a little bit. So we return, you have to, and he talks about building your own personal heaven and immortality being something you must earn. I'm not going to go through all the philosophical debate that he has with himself earlier in the book. But to do that, to, to move forward in life, you may have to eternally sacrifice the present for the future, put aside pleasure for security. In short, you'll have to work. So why would someone buy your prescription medication for his dog and then so carefully administer it when he would not do the same for himself? Now, you have the answer derived from one of the foundational texts of mankind. Why should anyone take care of anything as naked, ugly, ashamed, frightened, worthless, cowardly, resentful, defensive, and accusatory as a descendant of Adam? We're not worthy. I'm not worthy. God has condemned me to die. So even if that thing that being is himself, and we're not excluding women with this phrasing either, both Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. You're bad enough as other people know you, but only you know the full range of your secret transgressions, insufficiencies, and inadequacies. No one has more reason to hold you in contempt to see you as pathetic and by withholding something that might do you good, you can punish yourself for all your failings. A dog is harmless, innocent, unselfconscious dog is clearly more deserving. Adam and Eve came to know good and evil when they bit that apple. And they realized that they were evil. If we wish to take care of ourselves properly, we, we would have to respect ourselves, but we don't because we are, not least in our own eyes, fallen creatures. If we lived in truth, if we spoke the truth, 
then we could walk with God once again and respect ourselves and others and the world. Then we might treat ourselves like people we cared for. We might strive to set the world straight. We might orient it, it toward heaven, where we would want people we cared for to dwell instead of hell, where our resentment and hatred would eternally sentence everyone. In the areas where Christianity emerged 2,000 years ago, people were much more barbaric than they are today. Conflict was everywhere. Well, I'm not sure it's not everywhere today. Although human sacrifice, including that of children, was a common occurrence, even in technologically sophisticated societies such as that of ancient Carthage. Rome, competitions to the death. But such the cynicism that makes that opinion that it, a universal truism, well, wait a minute, let me back up a little bit more. Another problem has arisen, which is perhaps less common in our harsher past. It's easy to believe that people are arrogant and egotistical and always looking out for themselves. The cynicism that makes that opinion a universal truism is widespread and fashionable. But such an orientation to the world is not at all characteristic of many people. They have the opposite problem. They shoulder intolerable burdens of self-disgust, self-contempt, shame, and self-consciousness. Thus, instead of narcissistically inflating their own importance, they don't value themselves at all, and they don't take care of themselves with attention and skill. It seems that people often don't really believe they deserve the best care, personally speaking. But Christ's archetypal death exists as an example of how to accept finitude, betrayal, and tyranny heroically, how to walk with God despite the tragedy of self-conscious knowledge, and not as a directive to victimize ourselves in the service of others. So do you believe that you deserve to get better? Do you deserve that you believe, or do you believe that you deserve to live a life of success and happiness in this world? To read something, I learned two very important lessons from Carl Jung, the famous Swiss depth psychologist, about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, or loving your neighbor as yourself. The first lesson was that neither of these statements has anything to do with being nice. The second was that both are equations rather than injunctions. If I'm someone's friend, family member, or lover, then I am morally, morally obliged to bargain as hard on my own behalf as they are on theirs. If I fail to do so, I'll end up a slave and the other person a tyrant. What good is that? It's much better for any relationship when, when both partners are strong. And I'll say I was weak in my first marriage. I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. I didn't really know myself. I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to be, do, say, talk. I didn't have principles that I lived by. As Jung points out, this means embracing and loving the sinner who is yourself as much as forgiving and aiding someone else who is stumbling and imperfect. So love your neighbor as yourself. Do you really do that? Do you actually know what it means to truly love yourself and be happy with yourself? 
Do you understand what it takes to pull someone up by the bootstraps because that's what you would want them to do for you? Can you take that step to be there when your friends call you at two o'clock in the morning wanting and needing your help? We deserve some respect. You deserve some respect. You are important to other people as much as to yourself. You have some vital role to play in the unfolding destiny of the world. You are therefore morally obliged to take care of yourself. You should take care of, help, and be good to yourself the same way you would take care of, help, and be good to someone you loved and valued. You may therefore have to conduct yourself habitually in a manner that allows you some respect for your own being, and fair enough, but every person is deeply flawed. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. If that stark fact meant, however, that we had no responsibility to care for ourselves as much as others, everyone would be brutally punished all the time. That can't be the proper path forward. To treat yourself as if you were someone you are responsible for helping is instead to consider what would be truly good for you. This is not what you want. It's not what would make you happy. Every time you give a child something sweet, you make that child happy. That does not mean you should do nothing for children except feed them candy. You need to get them to brush their teeth. You got to teach them what failure means and how to bounce back. You got to sit there and play catch with them, talk to them, listen to them, be teach them how to be strong. You must help a child become a virtuous, responsible, awake being, capable of full reciprocity, able to take care of himself and others, and to thrive while doing so. You need to consider the future. Oh, sorry. Why would you think it is acceptable to do anything less for yourself? What might my life look like if I were caring for myself properly? What career would challenge me and render me productive and helpful so that I could shoulder my share of the load and enjoy the consequences? What should I be doing when I have some freedom to improve my health, expand my knowledge, and strengthen my body? You must determine where you're going so you can bargain for yourself so that you don't end up resentful, vengeful, and cruel. You have to articulate your own principles. You must discipline yourself carefully. There goes that discipline thing again. Discipline equals freedom. Read Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Don't underestimate the power of vision and direction. You must keep the promises you make to yourself and reward yourself so you can trust and motivate yourself. Strengthen the individual. Start with yourself. Take care of yourself. Define who you are. Refine your personality, choose your destination, and articulate your being. Nietzsche once said, He whose life has a why can bear almost any how. Do you know what your why is? Start by treating yourself as if you were someone you were responsible for helping. And I'm going to skip. I was going to do rule three, which is make friends with people who want the best for you. And 
the reason for that is, I don't know, I, I'm tight on time tonight. And I think this is one that I'll touch at another time maybe. I just want to say about this one, I'm so thankful for the friends that I do have, even though we don't see each other often enough. Family is one thing, but if you can't find friends that are willing to be there and stand up for you and stand with you through the worst of times, then you're missing out. And so there's a lot of ways to cultivate friends like that. I was fortunate enough to meet many of mine in the college time frame, so I've been friends with them for 30 years now. And I'm so thankful and grateful for that because they've been there through many of the worst times in my life and been there with me. And that's about all I got to say about that. But you have to pick the right friends. And you have to be able to set aside friends that don't want the best for you. Hey, just try this meth one time. One time. The next thing you know, you've you're in jail for possession and distribution and theft. You have to have a stronger sense of being and a sense of self to be able to stand apart from that. So I'm going to skip to rule six, and I think this is where this last rule is where I'll end up stopping. Rule six is one of the most important rules in this book, in my opinion. I guess that's why I'm talking about it, between this and the first two, two rules. Rule six is set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Life is, in truth, very hard. Everyone is destined for pain and slated for destruction. If you haven't noticed, we don't make it out of this world alive. Everybody's going to die at some point. So what are you going to make out of your life? Sometimes suffering is clearly a result of personal faults such as willful blindness, poor decision-making, or malevolence. In such cases, when it appears to be self-inflicted, it may even seem just. People get what they deserve, you might contend. That's cold comfort, however, even when true. Sometimes if those who are suffering change their behavior, then their lives would unfold less tragically. But human control is limited. Susceptibility to despair, disease, aging, and death is universal. In the final analysis, we do not appear to be the architects of our own fragility. Whose fault is it then? People who are very ill will inevitably find themselves asking this question, whether they are religious believers or not. The same is true of someone who finds his shirt sleeve caught in the gears of a giant bureaucracy, who's suffering through a tax audit or fighting an interminable lawsuit or divorce. And it's not only the obviously suffering who are tormented by the need to blame someone or someone for the intolerable state of their being. Even Leo Tolstoy had a good example of suffering in life. A religious man might shake his fist in desperation at the apparent injustice and blindness of God. 
Even Christ himself felt abandoned before the cross, or so the story goes. A more agnostic or atheistic individual might blame fate or meditate bitterly on the brutality of chance. Another might tear himself apart, searching for the character flaws underlying his suffering and deterioration. These are all variations on a theme. Why? Why is there so much suffering and cruelty? One of the most vengeful, vengeful murderers of the 20th century, the terrible Carl Panzeram, was raped, brutalized, and betrayed in the Minnesota institution responsible for his rehabilitation when he was a delinquent juvenile. He emerged enraged beyond measure as burglar, arsonist, rapist, and serial killer. He aimed consciously and consistently at destruction, even keeping track of the dollar value of the property he burned. He started by hating the individuals who had hurt him. His resentment grew until his hatred encompassed all of mankind, and he didn't stop there. His destructiveness was aimed in some function, fundamental manner at God himself. There's no other way of phrasing it. Panzeram raped, murdered, and burned to express his outrage at being. He acted as if someone was responsible. Same thing happened in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain's sacrifice is rejected. He exists in suffering. He calls out to God and challenges the being he created. God doesn't listen. He tells Cain his trouble is self-induced. In his rage, Cain kills Abel, God's favorite. Panzerum's response was understandable, was perfectly understandable. The details of his autobiography reveal that he was one of Tolstoy's strong and logically consistent people. He was a powerful, consistent, fearless actor. He had the courage of his convictions. How could someone like him be expected to forgive and forget given what had happened to him? Truly terrible things happen to people. It's no wonder they're out for revenge. Under such conditions, vengeance seemed, seems a moral necessity. But people emerge from terrible past to do good and not evil, although such an accomplishment can seem superhuman. You don't have to take that right turn down the path of evil. People can put an end to all of that. You can stop drinking. You can stop hating. You can start to give back to your culture, to your world, to your, to your family. You can decide to be a good person and, to, and do the impossible things required to live that way. Dr. Peterson once had a client who didn't have good parents. His mother died when she was very young. His grandmother, who, her grandmother who raised her, was a harridan, bitter and, and over-concerned with appearances. She mistreated her granddaughter, punishing for her virtues, creativity, sensitivity, intelligence. My client then had, well, unable to resist acting out her resentment for an admittedly hard life on her granddaughter. My client had a son. She perpetuated none of this with him. He grew up truthful and independent and hardworking and smart. Instead of widening the tear in the cultural fabric she inherited and transmitting it, she sewed it up. She rejected the sins of her forefathers. Such things can be done. And that rings so true with me. 
and there's so many things in my life that I am trying to do better for my boys than I suffered with through my life. And it's that is not to say that my parents taught me badly, that my parents did anything wrong. I think we're all walking a little bit further on this path every time, you know, with every generation that comes along. But it's something that we all have our weaknesses. We all have our places where we fall short. And do we inflict those on the younger generation? Do we make them a copy of ourselves? Or do we try to better ourselves and teach them to be better than we were? Our pastor at First Free, Pastor Shane Holden, has said this so many times where he had an alcoholic father who was a sex addict, drug addict, drug addict, and Shane started out exactly the same way. And I'm hoping to have him on here someday. Um, he's dealing with some health issues right now. But he is he has decided, and it rang so true with me as part of my path, that it stops now. The sins of the Father do not have to be perpetrated onto their sons. We can teach them to be better, and we can mothers can teach their daughters. It's not respective of either gender, so don't think I'm saying or playing any kind of card like that. But you do not have to perpetuate your weaknesses and problems onto your children. But what does that really mean? That means you've got to deal with them. You've got to do something with them. That you've got to take action and talk and understand yourself and and reflect to yourself what your weaknesses are. And then actually do something about them. And that's hard. Because it sucks. Bringing all my junk out into the light of day for God and my wife and everyone to see. Some of the things I've said on here, on this podcast, good God, please help me. But And that isn't that was an actual prayer of just help me to understand why I couldn't have done this a long time ago. So I hope you can take that and that's what this chapter is for is to talk through where do you start? And you don't start by fixing your neighbor. You don't start by fixing your boss or your coworker, or your children. If you're a mess, you start there. And I don't care what anybody says about Dr. Peterson, but that message to me encapsulates so much of what is wrong with society, is that people are not looking at themselves and understanding where they go fall short before they're out playing the virtue card and virtue signaling and canceling everything under the sun on both sides of the aisle, where that goes. People who experience evil may certainly desire to perpetuate it 
to pay it forward, but it is also possible to learn good by experiencing evil. A bullied boy can mimic his tormentors and bully another child. But he can also learn from his own abuse that it's wrong to push people around and make their lives miserable. Someone tormented by her mother can learn from her terrible experiences how important it is to be a good parent. Many, perhaps even most of the adults who abuse children were abused themselves as children. However, the majority of people who were abused as children do not abuse their own children. Abuse disappears across generations. People constrain its spread. That's a testament to the genuine dominance of good over evil in the human heart. And he references Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his Gulag Archipelago and his time in the Soviet labor, labor camps. Solzhenitsyn had caused to curse God. He was arrested, beaten, thrown into prison by his own people, struck by cancer, could have been resentful and bitter, lived in brutal conditions in Siberia. Vast stretches of his precious time were stolen from him and squandered. Job himself barely had it as hard. But the great writer, the profound, spirited defender of truth, did not allow his mind to turn toward vengeance and destruction. He opened his eyes instead. He contemplated the, their, the behavior of the people he encountered who comported themselves nobly under horrible circumstances. Then he asked himself the most difficult of questions. Had he personally contributed to the cat, 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 catastrophe of his life? If so, how? He remembered his unquestioning support of the Communist Party in his early years. He reconsidered his whole life. How many times had he missed the mark in the past? How many times had he acted against his own conscience, conscience engaging in actions he knew to be wrong. He pored over the details of his life with a fine-tooth comb. He asked himself a second question and a third. Can I stop making such mistakes now? Can I repair the damage done by my past failures now? He took himself apart, piece by piece. Let what was unnecessary and harmful die and resurrected himself. Then he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, a history of the Soviet prison camp system. One man's decision to change his life, instead of cursing fate, shook the whole pathological system of communist tyranny to its core. Because that one book is probably what eventually led to the Soviet Union crumbling. Can you imagine if he wouldn't have turned his back on the bitterness and hatred and, and agony of his life? Things fall apart in life. It happens. We build structures to live in. We build families and countries and states. We abstract the principles on which these structures are founded and formulate systems of belief. 
but success makes us complacent. We forget to pay attention. We take what we have for granted. We turn a blind eye. We fail to notice things are changing or that corruption's taking root, and then everything falls apart. Is that the fault of reality or of God? Or do things fall apart because we've not paid sufficient attention? A hurricane is an act of God, but failure to prepare when the necessity for preparation is well known, that is sin. If you're suffering, well, that's the norm. People are limited and life is tragic. If your suffering is unbearable, however, and you are starting to become corrupted, here's something to think about. Have you taken full advantage of the opportunities offered to you? Start small. Are you working hard in your career, your job? Are you letting bitterness and resentment hold you back and drag you down? Do you have habits that are destroying your health and well-being? Are you truly shouldering your responsibilities? Are there things you could do that you know you could do that would make things around you better? Have you cleaned up your life? If the answer is no, here's something to try. Start to stop doing what you know to be wrong. Don't waste time questioning how you know what you're doing is wrong if you're certain that it is. So simply stop when you apprehend, however dimly, that you should stop. Stop acting in that particular despicable manner. Stop saying those things that make you weak and ashamed. Say only those things that make you strong. Do only those things that you could speak of with honor. And I like to think that that's been one of the big changes for me is would I do and say the same things with my wife standing next to me? Would I be searching on the internet looking at the things I'm looking at if my wife were standing next to me? Do I have anything to hide? Our finances have been integrated since we got married. There, we have no financial secrets from each other. How many of you can say that that's true? Don't reorganize the state until you've ordered your own experience. Have some humility. Don't blame capitalism, the radical left, or the iniquity of your enemies. If you cannot bring peace to your household, how dare you try to rule a city? When you're at work, you'll begin to say what you really think. You'll start to tell your wife, your husband, your children, your parents what you really want and need. When you know that you have left something undone, you'll act to correct it. You'll then begin to discover new, more subtle things that you're doing wrong. It's a self-perpetuating process of, of kind of like an infinite progression that you can set in motion. Stop doing those things too. After some months and years of diligent effort, your life will become simpler and less complicated. Judgment will improve. You'll untangle your past. You'll become stronger and less bitter. You will move more confidently into the future. Perhaps your uncorrupted soul will then see its existence as a genuine good, as something to celebrate, even in the face of your own vulnerability. Perhaps you'll become an ever more powerful force for peace and whatever is good. 
Who knows what existence might be like if we all decided to strive for the best. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. So do that with setting your ego aside, with grace and humility, with God or your deity in support of you to understand where you need to take it. It is a process. It's a way of improving yourself. But you are worth it. How could you change your life and your family's lives if you decided today to make something better and be better? That's all I think I've got to say about that. That's three out of the 12 rules and 12 rules for life. Those are the three that hit me the hardest. And I hope that you got something out of this time. It has helped me. It's reinforced things I knew. But it's also given me a new perspective on the path that I was exploring. And I think that that's probably the best part about this altogether, is understanding what else there is to explore within myself to make things better. It may have taken me a while to get here, but it's never too late to start. So I hope that you take the time this week. If you don't want to buy this book, that's certainly your choice, but at least take the notes from this podcast or something and make a difference in your life. So what I'd like to challenge you to do this week is to make a list of 10 ideas that you could do. I don't care if it's going through your desk and cleaning the papers out and throwing out that that doesn't need to be there. If I showed you my desk right now, I'm slowly working on that myself. What little things, what big things, what path can you start to walk to make your life better and not shortchange yourself or your family by fixing. You can be better. You deserve to be better. I know I deserve it. I know God loves each and every one of us out there. And so I'm going to send blessings out to all of you that are listening, that made it this far. I know I was talking for quite a long time here. And I'm thankful to my wife for giving me this time to record and to do this. She is an absolute blessing in my life. And we have a synergy and a marriage that I am so happy for because it has made all the difference in my life. And I can't tell you how much that love and support has meant as we've walked this journey, as I've walked my journey. So I hope you can find something like that, but I just want you to know you are worth it. You are worth the effort of improving yourself and being more positively a part of this world. So thank you for listening. This is Tony Mays for the Grow to Amazing podcast. I'm out. Mm-hmm.